You're tuning into Work That Matters, the official Shaleda podcast. To learn more about us, visit shaleda.com. C-H-L-O-E-T-A dot com. Hey, everyone. This is Mark Masters at Shaleda, and I'm here with Judy Warren from the Excel Consulting Group, and she is the government contracts manager over there. And we've also got Emily Cochran, our vice president of business development strategy here at Shaleda with us. And this is the Work That Matters podcast. Hey, Judy. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. Hey, um, tell us how you got started in government contracting. Well, long, long ago at an Air Force base far, far away, (laughs) I went to work as a buyer and I bought airplane parts and it was exciting and fun, but I made friends with some of the people in the small business office and I decided that perhaps small businesses that we were working with could use a little bit more help. An opportunity opened up to go to the Small Business Development Center that was just then opening at Rose State College, where they were going to focus on government contracts. And we worked out a program that we called Small Purchases Opportunity Program. We taught small companies how to do business with the government on a select set a very, very small dollar contracts. So they learned how to do the military packaging and all kinds of things along the way. And that was a pretty successful program. But lo and behold, someone thought it would be a really good idea to move all of the items that were in our program to the Defense Logistics Agency. So we started working a lot more with bigger kinds of contracts and things like that. But I stayed at the SBDC there for 13 years, and then I had an opportunity to move to what was then called a Procurement Technical Assistance Center at Francis Tuttle Technology Center here in Oklahoma City. And I spent the next, gosh, 20 years (laughs) working there and helping small businesses who were doing all kinds of things. And I really enjoyed it. Working with small businesses has been probably the greatest joy in my working life. You see people who are willing to take risks, people who go through the uh, agony and the ecstasy of running a business. Sometimes uh, they're skinned knees and sometimes they're... (laughs) Yeah, I believe it. (laughs) But all in all, it's been a lot of fun. So... Um, let me ask you this. So how many years total is that? That's over 30, right? Uh, over 30. My uh, 42-year-old son was three. <laughs> okay. So it has been a file. Okay. And then more recently, since you left um, the PTAC, you've been at TGI, right? Right. Uh, working with the Tribal Government Institute, where they focus on helping Native American-owned companies and tribally-owned companies. They'll help others, but that's the main focus there. And I've learned a lot. Uh, For one thing, I didn't even know what an ISBEE was. Wow. Until just a few years ago. So it's been really interesting and fun there too. What I think is um, interesting but concerning a little bit is that so many Native American owned companies don't know that either. I was going to say, and a lot of government workers don't know it. I mean, that's a recent evolution, isn't it? Sort of pushing that forward. Yeah. And 
sometimes even contracting officers don't know what the yeah. SB firm is. So there's a lot of education to be done out there. Why, why don't you tell us what, what, what is that? What is an ISB firm? Oh, uh, Indian Small Business Economic Enterprise. So it can be a number of things, but among those are small businesses um, that do anything, uh, environmental work, uh, construction, a lot of medical services, could yeah, be janitorial or landscaping. We're doing quite a bit of that ourselves at the yes. moment. We're doing a ton of staffing for IHS and by EIE, I think. Mm -hmm. And they have to be 51% owned by Correct. an Indian individual. Yep. Um, and, you know, one thing, so we probably should get K Bills in here sometime, right? The, yes. The Buy Indian Act uh, guru. But, you know, one thing that uh, Emily could speak to this more, but that we've seen over the last couple of years is uh, the Buy Indian Act, you know, it's been a law forever, eons, right? Over a hundred um, years. That's right. And <laughs> and it just simply wasn't followed. And at some point, you know, through internal odds and other um, activities, um, you know, it was determined that, you know, hey, we, we should probably be following the law here. And so in the last couple of years, we've seen just a tremendous um, flourish of... Uh, ISB set aside. You got it. Everything. I mean, both, both with NHHS, with IHS, but also... Um, on the BIA side, and then even now, what we're starting to see is other interior agencies too. Emily just had a meeting a couple of days ago, I think. Yeah, so all of the um, interior agencies and bureaus are, you know, starting to have to add ISBs into their set aside. So it's on equal territory with the eight A's and the woman owned and the SDVOSBs. Uh, that's the service disabled, uh, veteran owned small businesses. Um, and yeah, so they're all having these you know, outreach events and industry days. Uh, I went to the one for the uh, U.S. Geological Survey a couple months ago and then just had one with the Bureau of Land Management as well. Okay. I have a question for you. Uh, with these new set-asides you're seeing, are the dollar values of the contracts any smaller than what you typically see for 8A? Because I think that's a barrier for a lot of companies. Yes and no. So the dollar value for a lot of the IHS work that we see is pretty low because it's being procured often, sometimes by the area offices, but generally by by the clinics, right? Um, and so we've got a ton of contracts that are for one FT, three FTEs, five FTEs, and so you know, in general, like as a small business, we're not necessarily favorable to bundling, like DOD style, right? But what would be really nice, I think, and be a, a good value add for the agency is if they would combine those. You know, if, if there were, say, a five-year IDIQ, IDIQ base plus four that had maybe five vendors, ISB vendors on it or something like that, and, and they took all the task orders, you know, CONUS for all the IHS healthcare staffing, it seems like that would be a lot more efficient for the agency than continue, you know, because I'll give you an example. So, um, this week we had 14 solicitations due just for IHS, ISBE healthcare staffing. Two weeks ago we had, I think, 13 or 15. And so that's about what we're averaging. And so, you know, it's a lot of work on industry, right, on the small businesses that are responding to those. But it's also a lot of work, obviously, on the contracting officer to go through the entire procurement process, you know, over and over that many times for just a person or three people or five people. So. I heard something the other day, and I don't know if it applies to those agencies, but I heard that overall the government has fewer contracting officers than they had a few years ago, so all the contracting officers have more work to do. 
the binding act's been on the books as a law for over 100 years. Um, it hasn't been well followed, to be honest, by the applicable agencies. And so what we've seen really, I don't know, I mean, this probably started, we could, once again, K-Bills would know better, but probably, what, three or four years ago, we really saw a renewed focus from uh, HHS and, and Interior, specifically, especially BIA, BIE, IHS, of course, BIEs and Department of Education, I think, but um, in complying with the law, right, and using um, Indian small business uh, firms and using Indian-owned business firms. Um, so kind of what we've seen, Judy, is um, the first agencies to really delve into that were obviously IHS and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, hardcore from our perspective, for the types of services we sell to government. And then now we're seeing that expand out into other interior agencies, which is great for us because we do a lot of work um, interior-wide, you know, writ large, environmental consulting and training, all kinds of stuff. So for us, that's awesome because that's already an existing client of ours for a lot of other services besides just healthcare staffing. But um, that's that's kind of where we're at. And I think the thing that Emily went to recently with the USGS deal was in Washington and yes. the deal was um, virtual. Yeah. But, you know, we're seeing that seeing that interior wide, which is super cool. Like, um, yeah, they're doing a lot of outreach trying to, you know, make sure that the ISB firms are aware that they're going to be, you know, using that side of the side and making sure that they get enough um, responses from ISB firms to. And Emily would know better than I would, but like on the IHS side, I would say they're complying like a hundred percent. I mean, nearly everything is yeah. coming out by Indian Act first, set aside, ISB set aside. It's ISB first, and then if they don't get enough responses, it goes to the IEE, so the non-small Indian-owned, yeah. and then it goes on to small businesses. So how are they doing that? Are they putting out one solicitation and then modifying it? Or are they putting Both. in a We've cascade? We've seen them re-solicit. Okay. Yeah. Completely. But lately, just like in the last like 90 days, we've been seeing a, t- a lot of tiered ones too. You yeah. Talk yeah. About that? Yeah. They're already, um, they, they, you know, get all the responses and then they, um, give preference to the Indian small business economic enterprises. Um, yeah, they'll actually tier the responses so they don't have to resolicit. Correct. Which is smart, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we were seeing a ton of resolicits, but, um, and on some of those tiering, it's like, you know, it'll be ISBE, IBEE, you know, like mm-hmm. Super 8A, Tribal, ANC, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, and then, like, number three might be, like, Hub Zone. Number four might be Service Disabled. And then number five. So it will say, if no qualified firms of this, they'll yes. go all the way down to full and open after four or five tiers. So so are they pretty much structuring it so that they have to have competition, though? They have to have two? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That yeah. makes sense. Which what we've seen on the healthcare side lately um, is... There hasn't been a problem with competition, to be honest. I mean, there's uh, obviously we've got some, you know, larger tribal A days that are starting to get into the healthcare, ISB healthcare staffing or IBE healthcare staffing side. And then um, there's a ton of small businesses that have spun up in the last 12 to 18 months that are ISB own one man band entrepreneurial startups that are um, competing for these healthcare staffing contracts with us. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of market. Yeah. Yeah, the available market's huge. I think kind of along with that, which I'm no IHS expert, we could get someone in here that is, but it seems like uh, there's a lot of focus on the use of the Buy Indian Act as a tool to staff some a lot of vacancies across the Indian country in healthcare facilities that maybe some of these positions haven't been filled in a long time, years or maybe even ever. So, so we're seeing a really, really heavy push. I mean, just like we said a while ago, mm-hmm. we're averaging right now over a dozen solicitation due dates just for IHS uh, 
is you set aside for IHS for healthcare staffing per week right now. So and, you are full bore with uh, proposal team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I would say that volume has been going on since about August. I'll tell you what happened was we saw an uptick coming into the Q4 of the federal fiscal year. And Emily and I thought, you know, um, hey, this is maybe we've got some roll forward funding from previous years because we had that with other agencies because of COVID. Um, where we had maybe two or three fiscal years worth of funding that rolled forward that was all trying to get spent at the end of FY22. And then, like, this uptick started, like, last summer. And we're like, okay, this is just normal Q4 stuff. And then, you know, the volume. And then we got past October 1, and we're like, okay, it's it'll let up by Christmas. And then, like, here we are, and it, we're coming into May, and we're still averaging 12-plus deadlines a week on ISB set-aside IHS healthcare staffing stuff. So it's the demand is intense. Yes. It sounds like somebody really listened. <laughs> yes, yeah, they did. I mean, and you don't often see that, right, in federal <laughs> agencies. I mean, that's bad to say, but, like, not very often do you see a group of federal agencies so abruptly turn course 90 degrees to, to do what, you know, what they should be doing. So yes. that, I think it's, it's good. It's good for industry. It's good for small businesses. It's good for the agencies. It meets the intent of the law. I mean, it's, yeah. it's great. It is, and it's good for the agencies in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. Yep. Agencies that should be serving Native Americans should also contract with Native Americans. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, and that's the intent of the law. So um, so let me ask you this, Judy. So knowing that you've been in government contracting basically as long as I've been alive and longer than anybody's <laughs> been alive, um, what are some of the evolutions you've seen, like, over that time from start to finish? Like, what are some of the major transitions you've seen in, in the government contracting arena over those 39 whatever years? I think that it was a little bit easier for a small business to get started with small contracts where they would have a limited amount of risk going in uh, and allowing themselves to learn with that smaller risk. And therefore, a lot more small businesses could get contracts. A couple of things have happened, but the major thing, I think, is the umbrella-type contracts or contract vehicles. The contract vehicles have become so popular that there isn't a need to have a lot of the smaller contracts anymore. Everything can be put together. And then that was compounded with the strategic sourcing initiatives. So a lot of things have been just taken out of the market as small contracts, individual contracts. And I think that that's the biggest thing I've seen. We've also developed more socioeconomic programs with certifications. And I'm not sure that that's changed the um, landscape as much as some people think it has, but it has changed it. The women-owned business program took a long time to get kicked off, but it finally did. Uh, the veteran-owned business program is incredibly unique. And for the Veterans uh, Affairs Department, they are really required to use veteran-owned businesses. And a lot of small businesses who are just entering the government marketplace don't really understand at first how very different the market is in one agency compared to another agency. So I think that those are the biggest changes I've seen. Um, you've been in a while, though. You've probably seen some changes, too. 
Well, I'm getting there. I mean, counting the side, the years on the other side of the table, I think it's about 22 years total on as a government employee and a government contractor now. But I'm glad that you brought up, you know, the GWACs and DWACs, for gonna, example. Mm-hmm. And Emily can speak more of this for sure. But, you know, what happens when you're really, really small? And, and fortunately, we're kind of on the other side of this spectrum now. But when you're really, really small, all the advice you get is, Go to SAM. Everything's going, you know, it used to be FBO, but go to SAM.gov. All the time. Yeah. And the problem is, there's two problems with that. Half the stuff, I don't know, half half might be an exaggeration, but a, a good percentage of the solicitations that are pushing there to the public, they're already, it, I don't want to say it's already been decided, but some vendor more than likely has already shaped the scope, had the ear of that client. They've been doing other work for the agency. And by the time it goes out for public bid, there's a right, wrong, or indifferent. There's already a significant competitive advantage for the incumbent. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, they tell you to go to you know sam.gov over and over, but when you're small, you be, as you grow, you begin to realize that money's flowing a lot of other places from the government to industry, and the answer you always get is it's sam.gov. And and as you start to dig in and do more research, you, you see that okay, there's billions of dollars, or if not more, flowing outside of sam.gov on contracts so how is this happening and then once you start to get a little bit larger you realize that it is difficult for a small business because you know getting on when you're just starting out getting on a gsa schedule is very difficult getting on seaport nxg a vehicle that we're on very difficult getting on um, some of the uh, dod may talks that we're on very very difficult as a small business starting out and so people don't tell you that you know what i mean all the advice you get is go to sam.gov when in reality, there's a lot of work that's being done that's not ever flowing through SAM.gov. Today, I wouldn't tell people to go to SAM.gov without also telling them, do a little bit of research first to find out where your products and services are being purchased, by what agency, and what vehicles they're using. Sometimes you may be lucky, and they may be doing a lot of standalone things, like maybe the, uh, one Healthcare provider at a right. time contracts, mm-hmm. but you may find that the agencies are pretty much using the GWACs, um, and you won't have an opportunity to even compete for that for a while. You'll never see it. I mean, the problem is you're completely locked out of even seeing it, to be honest, seeing what the opportunities are and what the value is. Right. Well, and I think that kind of goes into another piece of advice that you often get, you know, is subcontract first yeah. and get in that way. And so that's, you know, its own difficulties, but it's, it's so, a lot of it is very relationship based in that way. Um, you have to know who's on what vehicle and, you know, start working with them and say, Hey, we can provide this service, um, if you need it and get on that team and get on that vehicle. And then you start getting the past performance, but. But, And you have to show that you have some value to bring to the table, even at that very early stage. Right. And you'll have a lot more value down the road. Right. Right. So, yeah, yeah. We, we, we definitely see a lot of work flowing on those multiple award schedule vehicles. Um, as a matter of fact, we're trying, I don't know if Emily wants to talk for a second about it, but we're trying to get on Oasis. So, you know, we're on GSA schedule, we're on Seaport, we have some ATOX and stuff like that. But, of course, a whole slew of BPAs and IDIQs, but um, we're working on, uh, there, we, we tried to get on the last Oasis on-ramp, and the way it was structured, we just didn't have great past performance at the time. Yeah, but, they were capped, I think, at like 40 firms to get on, yeah, per something. pool. Um, but, yeah, this time it's going to be uncapped, and I think it's open and continuous. I could be wrong about yep. that. Um, 
but yeah, we're working on that currently. The the RFP, there's several drafts that have dropped. Um, they're still waiting to drop the official, the, the formal solicitation for that. But, you know, from, and there's a lot of agencies using that vehicle, but um, from a DHS standpoint, Department of Homeland Security, we know that there's five to 10 really strategic opportunities over the next two or three fiscal years that we're really well positioned for that. Um, and as a matter of fact, we've already had two this fiscal year. There were two that we were watching that one we knew would go, we expected to go Oasis, but another one we expected not to go Oasis that went Oasis. And they were high P-Win, high, high P-Win for us, you know, like right in our kind of sweet spot of the Homeland Security Emergency Management Consulting kind of work we do. But, you know, without without a, a teaming partner on there, we're locked out. Um, but, yeah, I think getting on to Oasis or the new Oasis mm-hmm. Plus or whatever it's called is probably will open up more doors to continue, you know, do more work for DHS beyond what, what we're doing right now. So, but yeah, those, those multiple award schedules are critical. It's just, just how the money's flowing, to be honest. And it seems to me that when you're working with multiple award schedules of any type, you're playing the long game. And like you said, when is the on-ramp open? You have to find that out first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this will tell you how fast time's going, though, and how old we're getting. There, there's a lot. We've seen some stuff come up here lately that we've been pursuing or looking at pursuing from a capture phase, and we're like, didn't this just solicit? No, it's already been base plus four. Yeah. Like, it's already coming yeah. back around again. As a matter of fact, we bid on a contract earlier this fiscal year that was the third go-round. You know, Chet and I looked at oh, it yeah. two cycles ago. Five years went by. We bid on it. weren't really competitive. And then five more years went by, and, and we bid on it, and we're real competitive. So, um but you might talk about why we didn't get that one, and that's a whole other topic we could delve into, but um, is the LPTA purchasing with DOD? Oh, yeah. Remind me, remind me that in a minute, but I had a, another thought about on the GSA schedule. One thing is, you know, you have to continue to make a certain amount of revenue off of that schedule, too, once you do get on, which is, you know, uh, understandable, Yeah. but it's another consideration. I don't know if Oasis is no big is deal, the same right? Way. When you're a little bit larger, but for us, like getting that, I think it was 25k a year in gross revenue or sales, that can be tough. For just another consideration tiny, as a small business, you know? yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, we're seeing a lot of LPTA stuff, obviously, and 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 that's a market that we um, avoid when we can and participate in when we have to. But um, yeah, we were really well positioned for um, a contract with the defense logistics agency and uh you know we knew the incumbent and what the original contract was for the previous cycle went for um we we got our you know rates tight where we could um and we were still under bid by about half a million dollars on a five five point five million dollar deal or something yeah 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 um, and, and, you know, that was a tricky one, too, because we had a large business teaming partner that was a subcontractor. We were the prime. And so, you know, for us, cutting into that wrap rate um, is easier than a large business because of the approvals and stuff like that that's required. So, you know, they're we also really heavily commercial. Up. Yeah, heavily commercial, too, on top of that. So, you know, we really beat them up on rates. And then, you know, it turns out just like, it's just a race to the bottom, you know, like we wouldn't have wanted the work for what it went for. Correct. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, at first we're like, man, we wish we would have got that. And then, you know, when we recrunched the numbers from a project costing standpoint, it's like, okay, well, that's below break even. So we'll let them have that. They can yeah. gladly have that work. People have lost money on government contracts. It's kind of a secret that nobody talks about, but it happens. Well, sometimes it happens. So 
here's when it's not okay to happen, right? Is like when you're starting out and you don't have a lot of cushion or, you know, when it's not planned. But I would say that there are definitely times where, uh, you go, you know, going into a project that you're going to buy the work to get the past performance. And, and I think, you know, if you've got a strategy behind it, that's okay. And, and a lot of times when you enter a new service area and that's how we've grown, like a lot of government contractors, right? Like you do something for the government, for an agency and you do well, they come back and say, Hey, can you do X, Y, Z? And it's like, well, you were doing ABC, but this is like maybe somehow tangentially related. And that's how you get from firefighting to healthcare staffing. You know what I mean? Like A to Z, like you do one thing leads to another if you do a good job and get good past performance. So that's very true. Yeah. And past performance is a, a really important topic. It's the most important in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. It's, it's the name of the game for Emily and I. Yes, absolutely. And we've, you know, been through some trials on that. Yep. Before. So, um, so, well, that's helpful to know, um, you know, kind of what you've seen change over the last 30 plus years, um, kind of shifting gears here for a second. I was hoping that, uh, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the 8A program. I know it's something that we're all really familiar with, but maybe some of our listeners might not be. Um, and maybe just talk about, you know, what the program is, what the attendant is, how it works a little bit. And then maybe we could share kind of our experiences in, in graduating the program. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Sometimes people will come into one of our offices and just say, hey, I understand that I need to get 8A certified so that I can get government contracts. And sometimes <laughs> people will come in and say, you know what? I'm not qualified for 8A. Does that mean I can't do government contracting? And the truth is that the 8A program serves a very useful purpose, but it's uh, frequently misunderstood when I was a buyer for the Air Force, I misunderstood it. I thought that it was to help small startup companies. And you can't even qualify if you are a small startup company. So I think there are a lot of myths still circulating about that program simply because it's been around so long. Well, and quite frankly, it's evolved. <laughs> so things that might have been true once are no longer true. Uh, but... The 8A program can be a very useful program for a company that is ready to grow. Mm -hmm. If they already have a solid foundation, they've got their infrastructure, their backroom operations all kind of lined out so that they can be compliant, so that they don't wind up with problems with the noncompliance issues with Department of Labor or anybody else. Uh, so that they could, these days, I would say you need to understand Section 889 requirements. You don't bring your Huawei phone in, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, <laughs> you need to understand a little bit about cybersecurity requirements and what that's going to cost you. Uh, but if you're ready at that level and you could cash flow one of the bigger contracts, then it's a good thing to get into 8A because... A lot of contracts are set aside for 8A. What that means is that the competition is limited to companies like you. So you put you on a level playing field. You're not trying to play little leaguers against pro ball guys. So it's just a, a better way to compete. And occasionally you might be able to get a small... Uh, sole source set aside for your company. Everyone who wants 8A thinks that they're going to be able to get sole source contracts. 
In my experience, that is not necessarily true. Sole source contracts are rare. So, again, go back to the research. Is anyone else in your field getting sole source? If there are lots and lots of companies doing what you do, the odds are they are going to be multiple 8A companies who can do what you do, eliminating the possibility of sole sources. But I think it's a good program because it gives you a good cash flow uh, to grow your company. And in services, that's really important. But it's not the end-all and be-all of government contracting. And also, you only get in it for nine years. Well, right. That's the biggest limiting factor, right? Do you ever see companies that get in it earlier than they should and aren't ready for that to scale? Absolutely. Uh, Particularly in construction. I have seen people who were advised by someone that they needed to get into the 8A program, and they qualified, so they got in. But they could not bond the projects that were being put into the 8A program. So it really didn't give them any advantage. I think I saw one whose 8A status helped them get a subcontract. But until you're able to bond the projects that the agencies are willing to put into the program, It's a mismatch. And so you can waste a lot of years. I've seen people go through the entire nine years without getting a contract. And that is heartbreaking. That is really sad. (laughs) It's a lot of work. You can testify to that. It's a lot of work to get into the program. Yes. And to have it be valueless Mm -hmm. for your particular company. You don't get a second chance. No, you don't. That's a good point. I think a lot of people don't fully realize that either. Uh, you use your personal eligibility once, and it is gone. So, for example, if a father and son are going to set up an 8A company, uh, I would recommend that one be the 51% owner and one be the 49% owner so that they don't have to both use their eligibility mm-hmm. and have it gone forever. Yes. Yep. Yeah, it's it's good that you bring that up because, I mean, that, that was our story, right? Like, we got our 8A. I wish we could have back those first, you know, six years. I think we were probably six, seven years into the nine-year program before we ever got our first 8A sole source contract. And, um, you know, if we could buy back those early years now, we'd kill for them to get some sole source, you know, no, no bid uh, set-asides um, to us But now that we've graduated. But, um, but yeah, so that totally makes sense that you can get into it too early. And that's kind of, what, you know, kind of what we did. It's kind of like a chicken and the egg. Like, we knew we needed it. And, like, a lot of companies, we need, knew we needed it to grow and be successful in the government contracting space. But, when you first get it, you just don't have the infrastructure in place yet to really take those take on the, a lot of the work. And then the other thing that we've seen is, and and we did okay, you know, um, in the sole source arena there in the last couple of years, and and we got a bonus year because of COVID. The mm-hmm. legislation um, bought us an extra year. But um, one thing that we've seen is those sole source contracts are tremendously dependent on relationships they're highly relationship based in our experience um you know not to mention needing the past performance needing the infrastructure and needing the competitive advantage you can have all that um and it doesn't matter if you don't have the relationship with that agency or that contracting officer or with that technical end user to be able to say hey this company is offering a solution that's unique they're 8a and no other company can provide this and we're going to non-competitively give them this work and they're that's our best option from the government standpoint so so what about um, what we call super 8As, tribal 8As, ANCs, which not all super 8As are, 
ANCs necessarily, privately owned uh, 8As, but um, maybe could you kind of explain the difference between, you talked about, um, you know, someone burning their individual uh, eligibility, but maybe you could talk about the difference between, you know, an individual owned um, uh, 8A versus a tribally owned 8A. I've worked mostly with individually owned 8A companies, but tribes can own companies. And what makes it a little bit better for them, first of all, they're not going to, uh, it's almost perpetual Mm -hmm. because the tribe is going to own more than one company usually. So they can have different companies performing in different primary NACE codes. They can subcontract to their sister companies to get them experience. And it just works out to be, a, I want to say, godsend mm-hmm. for those companies. And the tribes have learned to manage the companies and develop a lot of expertise. Yes. I think some of them are using those companies to train and employ tribal members. So it's a really good thing for them. Yeah, we, we see it all the time. I mean, there's some tribes that are really, really crushing it right now. Yeah. Um, with spinning up of new LLCs and new NAICS codes, and then they size out and they spin up more and, and are able to do that as, you know, basically, they're, they're, because it's tribally owned, there is no individual eligibility, right? Like the tribe's sovereign and it's indefinite. And, Correct. And, and they can continue to spin up LLCs and, and enter them into the 8A program and get sole source work indefinitely. So, Pretty much. Yeah. It's a different company. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, they're the same tribe. Um, what about, and I don't know if you know, are knowledgeable about this, um, Judy and, and Emily may be, but I'm not. Um, I, you mentioned earlier the WSB set-asides, and we all know that was a long time in the making, right? Just kind of like the Bi-Indian stuff we talked about. But um, still where I have a little bit of confusion is the WSB versus the ED WSB, and I believe one of those is maybe a self-certification of ones, and it, you know you have to apply to be certified. I'm not sure, but do you know? do you guys know anything about that? There are various woman-owned business certifications. The federal government uses two, WSB and EDWSB. The difference there is what NAICS codes can be used in each program because it's based on statistics that show discrimination in various NAICS codes. Wow. Interesting. I didn't know that. First of all, they, yeah. SBA does a lot of magic with the numbers, mm-hmm. okay? But they come up with next codes that will qualify for uh, WSB set-asides. And those, either type of company, whether she's certified as a WSB or an EDWSB, she can compete for those. Mm-hmm. But there are additional next codes that are only eligible for set-asides for EDWSBs. Okay. So... I've had people ask, well, wouldn't it be easier if I just go get the WSB first and then go back and get the EDWSB? And as much work as it is to go through the application, I tend to encourage people, if you qualify for the EDWSB, go for it first. And ED stands for economically disadvantaged. Gotcha. And there's a whole set of criteria, and Mm -hmm. it's all on the SBA website. Uh, and I would encourage you to look at the eligibility criteria. They actually have it set up on the certify.sba.gov mm-hmm. website now, too, so that you can do it in a question-and-answer format. 
that's nice. It's oh, it's much easier than it was. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing that EDWS OSB uh, set aside a lot more recently. I feel like. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we kind of already talked about this, Judy, but uh, you know, and we talked about it in the context of getting those uh, non-competitive sole source procurements via the 8A program. But tell us, in your opinion, you know, what, how important is relationships in government contracting? How you know, we're all familiar with the competitive bid process, right? Lined out in the FAR for different types of procurements. But, you know, at the end of the day, how, how important is that that rela- relationship with the client? Oh, and not even just with the client. I would say, you know, with your PTACs and, or APEX accelerators, I guess, now they're called, and, and with other uh, firms in your, you know, industry, that sort of thing. I think it is one of the most important things that you can think about and especially for follow-on contracts. Some people, when they think, oh, I've got to build relationships, they're telling me I need to play golf with these guys or I need to buy them Christmas presents or something like that. And that's not really what we mean when we say build relationships in government contracting. I even heard a guy on YouTube the other day recommending that people contribute to their senator's election campaigns and then call on them if they have problems. This is not what we mean when we say build relationships. And I hope nobody, but nobody listening to this ever thinks that that is what we mean. What we mean is building trust. And there are lots of ways that you build trust. I'd say beginning with your capability statement and your dynamic small business search, being honest and forthright about what you can and cannot do, Nobody is going to believe that you can do everything. So you need to start with what you really can do and be able to back it up. If you are brand new and you've never had a contract, why are you in this business? You had to have some experience doing this kind of work somewhere, and that's important. And you can get personal references, if nothing else, but start out with the truth. Uh, There's nothing that replaces honesty. I really don't think so. People will respect you. And respect is, I think, one of the beginning steps in trust. And that's how you build relationships. You keep your promises. If you say you're going to show up at a meeting, you show up at the meeting. If you say that your um, staff is going to have a certain level of credentials and somebody quits, you replace them with somebody who has that same level of credentials. If you're manufacturing a product and you say it's going to meet a particular standard, you don't deliver something that doesn't meet the standard. And I think that that, over time, is what develops the relationship. Uh, And also, whether it's manufacturing, construction, architect, engineering, or regular services, when there are problems, you don't hide them. You communicate. This is the problem, and this is how we're going to try to fix it. You don't just let those things go and and try to keep anybody from knowing, oh, we don't have any problems. Uh, So that's been my experience anyway. Uh, You have something that has happened with you? No, I was just going to say, I think the, you know, trust speaks to, even if you are, if you're honest with your capabilities, even if you can't do something for someone, um, you know, letting them know what you can do, they might hear down the road somebody else that needs that service that you can do and they'll remember you and so you can still get 
those relationships, even, you know, by turning down something that you, cause you can't do it. That's true. And you just reminded me of something that uh, happened many years ago. We were sending out notices uh, to all kinds of companies about different construction projects. And I ran into a guy at a trade fair that had been receiving these for a long time. And I asked him if he'd ever been able to get any work from those leads we sent. And he said, no. And I was just like, oh, you know, what a waste of time then. He said, however, when I approached some of these prime contractors and it was already too late to get any work on that contract, we started talking and I was able to get subsequent contracts with them. So again, it's making those connections with people showing up and doing what you said you would do when you show up. It really is a small world too, you know, and it, it kind of always comes back around. Sometimes we'll have an opportunity to come up and, and need to team with a company we haven't talked to in years, you know, exactly. And, and, or, you know, you, you know, someone that knows someone, or we've worked with someone before that can put you in touch with the right kind of teaming partners. We run into that a lot on those, um, larger DOD may talks that we've been trying to prime, um, in the last year or so where, um, the work is really diverse and, you know, some of those, I mean, how many sub K's were you up to? Eight. Five, six. Yeah. Five, so, you know, like we're priming a may talk with five or six subcontractors because you need all of them because the work's so diverse, not any one company can do it. And then even of those five or six, one or two were larges. Um, and the, you know, two of them were, and the rest were smalls. Um, so, you know, for that kind of work and, and we're not operating heavily in that environment. I mean, we're just getting into that type of work, but, um, you know, for any government contractor, but especially doing, you know, going after those kind of DOD may talks that have a really diverse PWS or scope, um, having those relationships to make the connections to get the right person, because you never know when you might need an underwater geology firm. And there's only a handful of those in the U S that are really good. It is interesting how, very specialized some of the requirements yes get. yes yeah. yeah so um just kind of shifting gears judy anything you want to talk about on any far updates i know you're the far guru and and for years that was kind of the relationship she is that i had with judy was i you know i would call her when i had a far question for many years um and i'm by no means a far guru now but i go to emily instead of bothering you usually but um, of course, we got the power of Google at our fingertips. I was going to say, but, I go to acquisition.gov. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, any, any any recent updates on procurement we haven't already talked about, whether, you know, far related or otherwise, and we've talked about set-asides, we've talked about a ton of great stuff, but anything else, either, either far or were otherwise related in GovCon that you're seeing right now? Actually, um, the Department of Labor is going to take a stronger look at helping construction companies to meet their uh, compliance issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a step in the right direction. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of agencies begin to have outreach to small businesses in the form of training to Mm -hmm. keep them from getting into problems, which I think is excellent. Like I said, it's a not well-known fact, but some people have lost money on government contracts. Uh, some people have lost a lot on government contracts. So I think that it's good that people are trying to work with them to educate them before they make errors Mm -hmm. that will cost them dearly. Um, There are changes that are happening in different things. Most of all, I think what I've noticed is 
changes in security issues and domestic preference issues. Mm-hmm. So all companies that are going to contract the federal government need to be aware of the cybersecurity requirements. And there's a lot of information out there about that. You can go to projectspectrum.io for some free training. Uh, Kelly Kernan with the Air Force is doing some training that she calls um, Cyber Blue. And you can find out about that and get some free training there. If you're trying to sell to the Department of Defense, you're going to actually need to do a self-assessment to see how closely you are able to meet the requirements of um, NIST 800-171 and post that to the SPURS program. That is a challenge for some people. Doing the self-assessment itself is kind of difficult, but it is now a requirement. And the agencies are being told, or the defense agencies are being told, that the contracting officer must consider the SPURS score. Right now, they are not including the self-assessment as part of the SPURS score. They're looking at other things, uh, pricing risks, product risks, things like that. Um, But... Most people that I talk to are anticipating that the government is moving toward that. And with as many things as there are in NIST 800-171, I think that anyone who's serious about doing business with the federal government, especially the Department of Defense, needs to be looking at cybersecurity requirements. Let me ask you this. For us, maybe a small business that's starting up in government contracting or um, you know, maybe that's uh, still a small, very small business, but beginning to grow. Do you think that these um, CMMC and these NIST um, cybersecurity requirements are going to be a, bar- a bigger barrier to entry for those smaller firms? The longer you wait, the bigger the barrier to entry will be, I suspect. Mm-hmm. I have been wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is going to become a bigger barrier. It's like... Um, Artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough to even say chat GPT, mm-hmm. but I know that it's important. And if I were going to do business with the government mm-hmm. or probably anyone else, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would start learning about how to use that tool. Right. So there are things like that. Um, back to the government and how things are changing. There is an increasing um, emphasis on domestic sourcing. So that may create some opportunities for people, and I'm hoping it will. But again, you have to be careful because if you're making a product or even using a product, it may impact you. Makes sense. Yeah. And that CMMC lift and that, um, you know, being cyber um, compliant, it, it is intense. Um, we've been living that reality, you know, in the last 12 to 18 months. And and we're still small. We're a small business in our primary nakes, but, you know, we're we're a larger small. You know what I mean? We're becoming, uh, uh, sizing out over the next, you know, couple, two or three years here. And so, um, you know, hi, we had to hire a third-party consultant, a large in the industry, well-known for compliance. And, and we've been working on, on this for well over a year. And it is, um, the requirements are intense and, and the costs associated with it, they're real, very real. And from what I understand, it's an iterative process. Correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you have to test things out, and then you may find out you have to do something else a little differently. And it's going to be different for every company because 
what you do is different and the way you've set up your um, infrastructure mm-hmm. is different. Yeah, I don't know much about it. I'm by no means a SME on CMMC compliance, but and we should probably get someone in here that is to talk to them. But just from our own experience of dealing with it peripherally through our IT folks and through um, this consultant we're using, it's it's been it was far more complex than I would have ever imagined. Yeah, and I can see what you mean about if they like wait longer to start it because I feel like we you know kind of had to do everything at once, mm-hmm. and yeah, that has been. Uh, a very heavy undertaking. Yeah. And a lot of it that people can address at the very beginning mm-hmm. uh, would be less costly. When you're starting your, what, what software you choose to right. do your, you know, email through and just everything from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And how you're going to compartmentalize things. Yeah. Who needs access. Yes. Uh, even keeping a log for physical security. Right. Who had access to the room. Yeah. Just things like that. Uh, those don't cost a whole lot if you build them in from the beginning. Uh, but if you have to do all of it all at once. And then if you have to go back and change anything, too, like that can be really costly. So let me ask you this, Judy, um, you know, kind of before we wrap up, are there any other tips, tricks, or techniques you want to share? Well, I'm actually thinking about that. And... I have been concerned about people getting themselves in trouble and losing money ever since I started working with small businesses. I saw it happen a few times, and it bothered me a lot. So I've given that a lot of thought. And recently, I was going through a checklist in my mind of all the people I'd seen get themselves in some serious problems, either get debarred or lose a lot of money. Uh, Losing a lot of money helps a lot. Uh, having internal struggles, uh, splits in partnerships, things like that, uh, based on problems that resulted from contracts. Mm -hmm. And I tried to figure out if there was anything in common. And I think I found one thing Mm -hmm. and only one thing. People don't set out to get themselves in trouble. No one wakes up one morning and says, how can I go mess stuff up? (laughs) But I think what can happen, especially with new companies who are entering the government space, is that they are in such a hurry that they are just whipping through things. And I do remember a client that got in some problems because he signed off on things related to the Buy American Act, and he was actually selling a product that was manufactured in China. Whoops. Whoops. (laughs) He didn't even realize there was a problem because... Oh, that's just all that government boilerplate. So he really didn't even read what he was signing. And similar problems with packaging. Oh, that's just a line of code. Well, I'm sorry. If you're packaging something for the military, that line of code goes back to a standard, and you need to make sure that your packaging materials meet the standard. So people are just in a hurry. And they skip steps. Yeah. Uh, people are in a hurry to get into a certification program because they think it's going to help them a whole lot uh, without maybe thinking it through strategically. Even the um, programs that are maybe uh, not as famous as 8A, you spend a lot of your energy and time going through an application process to get approved for that. And if it's bad timing 
or if you don't need it because the agencies you're going to sell to don't work that way, then you've used up a whole lot of your resources for something that isn't going to pay off. And you could have done so much better had you focused that time on something that would pay off. So I think people should slow down a little bit at the beginning and ease into it if they can. Now, there's some things you can't ease into. If you're going to launch a rocket to Mars, you can't do it in tiny bits. (laughs) But a lot of things you can ease into and then you learn. And if you do make mistakes, they're not quite so costly. I think it kind of goes back to your earlier advice, too, for small, small businesses getting into the government arenas. Um, You know, basically what it sounds like if you're going too fast and you overcommit, to do things that you're not capable of doing. I mean, it goes back to, to being transparent with the agency, with the client, letting them know what you are or are not capable of, which it is hard. We've been there, right? Like we've been that tiny firm trying to win contracts and it's difficult to tell an agency that wants you to do something for them that no, unfortunately we don't have the capacity or infrastructure or expertise to be able to pull that off um, at this time. So, yeah. um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I heard you mention, we don't have to get into any specifics, but um, having been involved with or supported, assisted um, contractors that have been debarred, what did that process look like? I mean, we know what the debarment is, but like, I guess what what was so egregious in your experience in that instance or the instances you've dealt with that would lead up to that? Um, that's the only one I got involved with at great length, and it was fast. Mm-hmm. Someone found the problem. They reported it. The mm-hmm. agency... Um, Submitted him for debarment. Mm-hmm. He was basically notified, and that was it. And it, you know, like, was it a product-related thing? Was it, it was product-related thing? And and it was a foreign country. Issue? Uh, it was a buy American issue, yeah. and the product was not an American-made product. So it could have probably been worse because when mm-hmm. you get right down to it, that's fraud, right? <laughs> So at least, you know, that wasn't a, he didn't suffer any more than getting debarred. But a debarment can last for three years, and mm-hmm. that just eliminates your ability to do any business with the government for that three years. So it was pretty severe. And he tried to um, talk to them and write mm-hmm. correspondence and work with them. But in this instance, they were just pretty much saying, this was what the requirement was. This is what you signed. That's what you sent us. You're out of here for three years. Wow. That's that could be really detrimental for a yeah, small I mean, business, be, too. That could, end, that could end your business. You know, if, if, if government sales was a big part of your business model and you're small, I mean, that, right. that could put you out of business real easy. And there's several things you can be um, debarred for, including labor law violations, mm-hmm. um, contract fraud. Yeah. Uh, if you ever want to just have lots of nighttime reading when you have nothing else to do. We're, we were on the same boat with you. <laughs> GAO reports. Yeah. Yes. So at, uh, actually not what I was going to say. We, we get these automated email alerts from, um, I think, Northern Virginia District or whatever, um, uh, for DOJ. And so, oh. you know, and, and so we'll, yes. I'll get those every couple of weeks and I kind of forward them on to our senior management team. And just it's. Those are the criminal ones, right? It's insane. You know what I mean? Like some of the stuff that's in there, and those are the departments that, you know, I'm familiar with is just reading these, like, you know, basically press releases from DOJ. But um, it seems like it 
all, all the ones I've read in the last year have almost always involved with uh, involved either some kind of uh, procurement integrity, you know, integrity and procurement act kind of situation, or just outright kickbacks. Um, there've been a few, like two, just in the last month or so that were contracting officers, warranted COs or KOs that were taking trips, taking vacations, taking cash, crazy, crazy stuff. But the ones that are even more egregious than that, I think, are um, most of the ones that we read, which are usually some kind of kickback where basically, you know, someone thinks they're going to somehow game the system and, like, get their brother-in-law to start up an 8A, but actually the brother-in-law's got nothing to do with it. Or, you know what I mean? Like, classic, like, hey, we've got this small business that doesn't really exist that we're going to push small business set-asides through to this large company. And so some of the stuff that you read in those reports that 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 people think is okay that they're going to get away with is just kind of mind-blowing to us. Not that we don't, you know, make mistakes and, and in the nature of, you know, performing on a lot of government contracts simultaneously and just project management issues are going to come up and and i think that how you handle those um with the 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 client is really important right like um when you go to the client you say there's a problem or they identify a problem and bring it to your attention like don't let it get to uh, a default for termination standpoint you can stop something way before that by open communication and fixing the problem if it's your mistake or uh hold your ground if it's something that the government's wrong on and they need to fix so um yeah. So, but it's pretty crazy how egregious some of the stuff you see is in those DOJ press releases. Yeah. So I would send it on to our senior management team. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. this so. Well, it's nice to know that people do get caught. Yeah. Anything you read about there, somebody got caught. Right. So it kind of encourages you not to think you can get away with right. it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, cool. Well, wrapping up, Judy, I, I appreciate you coming so much. And you've been a big part of our success in the early years of Shalita. So, um, but anything, any kind of like closing thoughts or last words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Oh, a couple of things, maybe. Um, no matter how successful you are, you need to always look at every contract opportunity as a multiple um a mixed bag. There are opportunities there, but there are potential problems. So you want to read, read, read. And especially when you're new to government contracting, ask questions. If something doesn't sound logical, ask. If you can't find a reference, like a specification that is being referred to, ask. Because you don't want to go into these things blindly. And the other thing is just do communicate when you get the contract. If you don't get the contract and it's eligible, ask for a debrief. Oh, because yeah. Because you learn a lot in the debriefs. Absolutely. And then going back to something you said, you need to price to win, but you don't need to price to lose your shirt. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other topic, strategic pricing and government contracting, right? Well, Judy, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, hopefully we brought some value to, to our listeners or viewers. I hope so. And it's been fun yep. to be with both of you. Yep. Glad you could join. All right. Well, that's it for the Work That Matters podcast. Um, once again, thanks to Judy Warren uh, for joining us to share her government contracting expertise and, and for Emily from uh, Vice President of BD from uh, here at Shalada to uh, for joining me. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work That Matters, the official Shaleda podcast. Learn more about us at shaleda.com. C-H-L-O-E-T-A dot com.